good to be with you. Uh, we, my family and I, we uh, live in the Harrisburg area, but we are about uh, 10 minutes uh, from Hershey Park. Uh, you can smell the chocolate in the air if the wind is blowing in the right direction uh, on a nice summer day from our house. So, but I am an amusement park junkie. And uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced a sign like this where it says, you will get wet on this ride. Uh, I love amusement parks. I, I love thrill rides. And, uh, and the one I'm thinking of at Hershey Park, there's this big boat. Uh, that takes you all the way up to the top, and it circles around, and when you come down, uh, the sign is not lying. When it says, you will get wet on this ride, what it means is you will not have a square inch of clothing that will remain dry. You will be drenched. It's, it's always fun to watch uh, maybe first-time amusement park people, because they're like, oh, you know, we're going to go on this ride, we're going to get sprayed a little bit, and we'll laugh, and <laughs> it'll be fun, and they walk off just drenched, like, you know, they're, they're wearing sneakers, and you can hear the, the sneakers, uh, you know, just making that disgusting noise as they walk uh, in the summer heat, but uh, I love ad- uh, adventure, uh, I love uh, kind of thrill rides, but if I'm honest, You know, the danger of an amusement park ride really only represents nothing but a relatively low-risk quest for entertainment. It's a little more than a short-lived diversion. A day at a high-priced modern amusement park is really only hazardous to your wallet. If you're looking for genuine adventure... Don't settle for feeble imitations. Jesus calls us to something far more worthwhile than the cheap thrills that you would get at an amusement park. When you get close to Jesus, you'll find yourself faced with this life-changing, future-altering, hope-kindling adventure of faith. That's what happened to Simon Peter. When Peter met Jesus, it was like a piece of hard, uh, hard flint Striking against a stone, sparks began to fly, good sparks. And this flame in Peter's heart, it grew uh, stronger and it grew hotter and purer with every lesson that he learned, with every trial that he endured. You see, God used Peter in many ways, and one such way he used Peter uh, was to write the book of 1 Peter. This is the book that we are studying through. Uh, as a church right now, uh, and he wrote this book to talk and to encourage the church, to give them hope in the midst of their suffering. You see, it wasn't always easy to follow Christ in Peter's day. As Ben pointed out a few weeks ago, Christians were being rounded up and killed in the most inhumane ways by the orders of Emperor Nero. Uh, They were abused They were mistreated all because uh, they were Christians. And so for these Christians, disappointment, disillusionment, even hopelessness was starting to set in. And so Peter, uh, he writes to them in 1 Peter to encourage them to not lose hope. And the way he says you don't lose hope is simply by doing this, by, by setting your hope in the grace 
that is ours when Christ returns. You see, Peter says the way you survive suffering in this world is you spend more time thinking about heaven. And what is ours when Jesus returns? And so, from here, the rest of this letter, uh, he really goes in to describe what one's life should look like. What, what one's life should look like who has placed their hope in the grace that is ours when Jesus returns. And so last week, Virgil introduced this theme of submissiveness. And we looked at the second half of chapter 2. You know, submission, when rightly understood, it's not degrading. It doesn't diminish one's dignity or personhood. Submission rather suggests an attitude of humility, of thoughtfulness, and of consideration. A submissive person puts love into action by unselfishly doing whatever is in the best interest of another person. You see, the fact is, submission didn't diminish the greatness of Jesus Christ. He submitted himself to the Father, and yet was equal to him. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open uh, with me or tap through on your Bible app to uh, the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, and I'm really just kind of dealing with the, the, the last part, uh, the tail end uh, of this particular a chapter. And uh, I have to uh, admit, though, to you that the scripture text that we're dealing with this morning uh, has a lot of controversy around it. It's, it's a very difficult passage, that probably the most difficult passage of First Peter. In fact, it's so difficult, many scholars have had a hard time with the passage. For instance, Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, not, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the reformer, he wrote this. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it. <laughs> you see, Luther was not the only one who's wrestled with the meaning of this passage and has come away puzzled. Now, in the middle of this text that we're looking at this morning, we get to verse 21. And verse 21 is really uh, the, the scripture text that we're just going to spend the rest of our time this morning just digging down into. Verse 21, it says this, corresponding to baptism uh, that now that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, we're left to wonder in the middle of his presentation of the triumphant work of Jesus, why does he stop to give us this brief teaching about Christian baptism? I want to give you two reasons that I believe seem to fit the broader context. You see, first, baptism is the greatest display of submission. You see, we're still on this theme that Virgil introduced last week. Uh, baptism is the greatest display of submission. And the greater context of Peter's teaching is on submission. And so I can't think of uh, any other better example that he could have given than what we see in Christian baptism. Now, where baptism is mentioned in the Bible, it's always in the passive tense. 
What this means is that it's something done to you, not something you do, but something done to you. It's a work of God when, he, when you come to him submissively in a watery grave of baptism, ready to die to ourselves. And so the second reason I believe that Peter gives us this teaching on baptism here in chapter 3 is that he's revealing to us something here in this text that most, pro, most in the Protestant world are simply unable to see. And that's simply this. Peter is telling us that that saving power of Jesus' death and resurrection had already been applied to the Christian's life the moment they were baptized. You see, remember, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who were just getting hammered. I mean, they're just getting slammed and, and dumped on for their faith. And they're trying to live, imagine this, trying to live in this space in between knowing that you're God's elect, knowing that you're God's chosen people, and yet living as exiles, right? And that space in between is where they're living, in this space of, of feeling the feeling of being loved by God, and yet at the same time having these feelings that seem like I've been abandoned by God, and, and, and how do I, I reconcile these things? And, and they're living in that space, and Peter is saying, in those moments where you're feeling the ramifications of being in exile, when you feel like you've been abandoned by God, you just need to look to your baptism and remember that it was there that I promised to meet you and empower you to live for me. It's where I promise to meet you and take your sin and wash it clean. It's where sin no longer has mastery over your life. You see, as Christians, we do not strive for victory. We rest in it. We rest in it. Even in the midst of hardships, even in the midst of trials. And baptism is a decisive moment in the Christian's life in which when we begin to doubt that God truly loves us, we look back at our baptism and we remind ourselves that the saving power of Jesus' death and resurrection on that cross was applied to us. So, if I can geek out for you just for a moment. All right. Uh, most of the Protestant world is unable to see this because they've separated baptism from the process of salvation, from the process of being saved. And so during the Reformation, one reformer, uh, Swinlig, he declared that everyone before him had been wrong on this subject of baptism. And just like that, he cast aside 1,500 years of teaching about baptism, and he introduced a new way of looking at baptism. Instead of baptizing, baptism having a connection uh, with the process of our salvation, he made it nothing more than just an outward sign of the recipient's already existing membership within the covenant people of God. And so this morning, as we dig in to 1 Peter, and in particular chapter 3, verse 21, I want you to know two things up front. And first is simply this, that T Peter's uh, teaching on baptism, what I believe Peter is teaching about baptism here, it's not a newer teaching. Rather, it's the original teaching about baptism. 
for the, the first 1,500 years of the church, it was the original teaching of baptism. Second, I want you to understand that what I believe Peter to be teaching about baptism is, uh, and, and what was taught in the first 1,500 years of Christianity is not what is taught in most Protestant churches today. All right, and so here's what I want to ask all of you this morning to do. All of you that, that perhaps you have a belief as to what baptism is and is not, uh, here's what I, I'm asking you to do, is to simply do your best to approach this text this morning without bringing your preconceived ideas of theology or what someone else has taught you and simply to try to let the text in its context and in its original language be whatever it seems to suggest. Now, I understand to a degree, right, we all bring some kind of bias to, to a text when we, we sit down to interpret. I understand that, but what we're trying to do with a text that is so confusing that apparently so many in the church have disagreements on what it is and what it isn't, is we're trying to see what the text says in terms of language and in terms of context and arrive at what the author's intended meaning is, or in this case, what Peter's original meaning was for this text. And so let me just read to you again 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 20 through 21. It says, To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, to me, this passage sums up all other passages in the New Testament, uh, what they teach about the meaning of baptism. For instance, Mark 16, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples instructions on what they're supposed to do while he's away preparing a place uh, for us. And we refer to this as the Great Commission. All the gospel accounts write a Great Commission. It's always at the very, very end of the gospels. Uh, even the book of Acts has a Great Commission, but this time it, it's at the beginning because it's the beginning of the church. It, it picks up right where Jesus ascended into heaven and, and begins there. But in Mark's gospel, his Great Commission statement we see this, Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So next to Mark's gospel, this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 is the most explicit biblical statement on the relationship between baptism and the process of salvation. And what we see here in 1 Peter is that Peter uses an analogy between baptism uh, and Noah's flood in the book of Genesis. Verse 20, he says, in it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were actually saved through water. So water or salvation through water is a type or an analogy of the fact that baptism saves. But then Peter says this phrase, not the removal of dirt from the body, which implies here, 
that the form or the mode of baptism is by immersion. We're not talking about a sprinkling here. The actual Greek word uh, baptizo means to dip or to immerse. It, it wasn't a, uh, necessarily a, a religious term uh, in, in Jesus and Peter's day like it, it kind of is for us. People would talk about baptizing their clothes. and In, in other words, they're talking about doing their laundry. It, it was a word that just simply meant to submerge underwater. All right? And, and so... Verse 20 says, eight people in all uh, were saved through water. So water or salvation through water is this type of uh, salvation. Uh, And it's why we don't believe in sprinkling uh, as a proper form or mode of Christian baptism. Remember, we're looking at what the words mean and we're looking at the context of this text. And so to dunk or to submerge, you know, Peter's phrase, not the removal of dirt from the body, the context simply would not make sense if Peter thought that only a few drops of water was what was needed to be sprinkled on the head. But you see the force and the clarity of Peter's words. This water symbolizes baptism. That now saves you also. I mean, it makes it so difficult for one to simply dismiss this as only being symbolic. But it raises the question, well, then how does baptism save? Well, you see, there's no disagreement in the ultimate power of salvation that it's only by God's grace. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can earn it. And so what is it about our participation in baptism that help makes this the occasion for salvation. Well, Peter answers this in chapter three. Uh, It's simply not this way, but it's that way. In other words, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh or from the body. That's the negative part of Peter's words. He's saying it's not this. It's not this outward removal of dirt. But then Peter moves on to the positive side of this explanation of how baptism saves. Peter says it's an appeal. It's an appeal. Let me read this again. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now here's where it gets interesting. That's the New American Standard. Uh, When... If you have an NIV translation, they translate this word instead of appeal, it's this word pledge. You know, it's kind of like a Boy Scout, right? When they make their pledge or, and and they're basically, they're making a promise, right? But if it's a pledge, that would mean that baptism is a pledge that we make before God to maintain a good conscience before him. And in this case, the spiritual action of baptism would be not something God does, but something we're doing, right? Uh, Maybe you've been there before. God, I promise I won't do it again, right? I'm going to have a clear conscience before you. I'm going to take care of, I'm going to work harder, right? It's that idea. The King James Version translates this word answer. So not an appeal, uh, not a pledge, but an answer. It's the answer of a good conscience. And in this case, baptism would be how a good conscience responds to God's answer or God's call to salvation. 
My suggestion to you would be the New American Standard word, appeal. It's the best translation here for two reasons. First, the common meaning of this verb form of the word is ask, inquire, request. The verb is used in the New Testament about 56 times, and it's almost always translated this way. But the second, uh, but the, the second um, word, appeal, it, it fits best with the context of this passage. Remember, however one translates this word, it, it is an act of baptism, and therefore it must fit with uh, how we understand the rest of Scripture uh, to teach. And Scripture teaches that we are saved not by works, not things that we do. We are saved only by God's grace. Only because he chose to have mercy on us and gives us grace are we able to be saved. And so the meaning of the word we assign to it can't mean something that would transform baptism into a work that we do. You see, to be clear, baptism is a work, but it's God's work, not our work. It's an appeal. The way baptism functions as an appeal is that it is a prayer crying out to God to cleanse us by his grace. It's really kind of the equivalent of Acts chapter 22, verse 16, where it says, and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Wash your sins away, calling on his name. When we meet Jesus in the waters of Christian baptism, we are appealing to him. We are praying to him. We are calling on his name to do what he has promised to do, to cleanse us from our sin. Now let me just point out something real quick. If baptism is indeed an appeal, if baptism is something where we call upon God to make good on the promise that he's made to us, then this isn't something an infant can do, is it? That's why we don't see infant baptism as Christian baptism. All right, let's move on. So verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but we said an appeal to God. What are we appealing to God for? He says, for a good conscience. So since we request prayer for this, it must be something that we receive, right? Peter, in chapter 3, he calls this a good conscience, The answer to that is simply the fact that baptism is the time. Baptism is the occasion where God gives us a clear or a good conscience because it's where he places, where he bestows upon us his forgiveness, justifying us once and for all. Let me take you to another place where the apostle Peter mentions baptism. This time it's in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38. Uh, This is the very first sermon ever preached. It's the day the church began. Peter stands up and he gives this message and says people are cut to the heart. uh, And they realize they they were responsible for crucifying Jesus. And they say, well, Peter, uh, what must we do? How can we rectify this? How can we make this right? How do we... How are we not completely lost for the fact that we just crucified the one who is to save us? And Peter replies, 
He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches this for the very first time and they believe and they come to him. He could have said anything. He said, he could have said, you know, do 10 jumping jacks, you know, to, to say nine Hail Marys, whatever. He could have said anything to answer that question. He says, repent and be baptized. And why do we repent and why do we get baptized? He says, it's for the remission of sin or the forgiveness of our sin and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He answers them plainly. You see, two things happen when we sin. Sin creates two problems. The first problem is a legal problem. And your legal problem is this, is that you stand before uh, God, a holy, just God, a sinner, guilty of sin. And so problem number one is that you are guilty under God's law. You have some legal troubles. Problem number two is that sin makes a person spiritually sick. Technically, we are spiritually dead. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians that we were dead in our uh, sins, in our transgressions. So we are now sinful, sick in our inner being. It's sapping our spiritual strength. You know, when you're physically sick, you know, you lose physical strength, you get weak. And that's kind of what happens to us spiritually when we sin. We, we, when we become spiritually sick, we lose our strength to fight, trapping us in the grip of sin. And so two problems. Problem one is a legal problem. We stand guilty before God. Uh, and second, we're spiritually sick. But Peter says in baptism... Uh, Baptism now saves us because in our baptism, number one, your legal problem is dealt with. You were baptized for the forgiveness of your sin, for the remission of your sin, for the removal of your sin. This is the time in which God bestows his saving grace on those who've placed their faith in him and repented of their sin. That is, they're desiring to turn away from sin and yet also turn towards God. And in that, in baptism, we received from God forgiveness. Our criminal record is stamped, paid in full. The slate, is wiped, the, the, the slate has been wiped clean, not because of anything we did. It's not by our works, but by God's grace. And yet, that's not all that happens. You see, the other thing, excuse me, that happens in our baptism, according to Peter, is that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This problem deals with number two, which is our sin sickness. You see, the other thing that you receive is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That means the indwelling presence of God himself takes up residence in our heart and it regenerates your spiritually dead soul. And he remains there in order to give you strength and power to fulfill this mission that he's called us to live out on. Colossians chapter 2, Paul wrote, it's an important text because it points out uh, that these things happen in baptism. Uh, Paul says this in uh, chapter 2 verse 12, he says, Have, having been buried with him in baptism, don't lose that, in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, what did God do? God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. What an amazing scripture text. He's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And so back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says one final thing in in verse 23. We've looked at this. We've looked at that baptism now saves. We've looked at not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal. We're calling on God to give us this grace he's promised to us when we place our faith in him. And what is this for? This is for the good conscience. It's for the removal of our sin. The last thing he says here is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, our human aspect to the appeal to God does not save anyone. It simply calls on God's saving power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ give baptism saving power? Well, for starters, it validates the claim of Christ's work. But the second thing, and I think the main point here in 1 Peter is simply this, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ establishes the authority of Christ above all things. It establishes the authority above all things. So what does this mean? Well, it means for those of you who have been baptized, when hardships and trials and struggles Come along. When doubt begins to set in, we have a point in time that we can look to and we remind ourselves that the one who has all authority in heaven and all authority in earth met you in these waters of Christian baptism and justified you, washing your sins away breathing new life into you with his very presence. Remember, we don't fight in this life for victory, but from a position of victory. You see, for those of you then who've not been baptized, maybe you've been sitting on the fence. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Maybe if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, you believe that he did what he said he was going to do, that he died on the cross for your sin, raising three days later, that he's coming back to spend the, uh, to, to gather his followers to himself, to spend eternity with him in heaven. If you believe that, then I want to challenge you to do something today. And my challenge to you is simply this, go home wet. Go home wet. You see, following Jesus is an exciting adventure that comes with a lot of thrills and some really difficult times as well. It's not always a smooth ride, but it is the best decision you will ever make. But be warned, you will get wet on this ride. And so in a minute, we're going to stand and sing a kind of a a song of surrender, a song of submission. 
And as we're singing, I'm just going to walk over here to the steps over kind of near this baptistry. And if you need to make that decision to follow Christ for the very first time, or you've been following Christ for a while and you're saying, you know what, I never knew this was something I was supposed to do. Or maybe I was just, just kind of on the fence and you know what, today is the day. I want to encourage you to, to just meet me over here and go home wet. We have some clothes that you can change into. It's, you don't necessarily have to go home wet, right? Um, but I just spent the last 30 minutes kind of telling you why you should be baptized. But if you allow me just like two more minutes, I kind of want to tell you why you shouldn't be baptized. And that might kind of sound funny, but... Um, I'm going to do this just kind of rapid fire, all right? But uh, it's kind of a top 10 reasons why you shouldn't be baptized. And the first one is this. If you don't want a fresh start, if you don't want a fresh start, then don't get baptized because baptism is a clear breaking point from our past, from where we've been and who we've been to where we're headed and who we are in Christ. If you don't want a fresh start, then baptism isn't for you. Number two, if you don't feel worthy, because folks, the fact of the matter is God thought you were so worthy, he sent his one and only son to die for you on the cross. Number three, if you think Jesus' words were only suggestions, you see, it's, it's a command, it's, it, it's an imperative uh, in the scripture text to make followers of Jesus, to make disciples of Jesus by baptizing them. Number four, if you think you don't need baptism to be saved, we can all think of dramatic exceptions where God may choose to act differently. But I think I've spent the last 30 minutes building a case that the normative process laid out in scripture is for us when we place our faith in Christ to be baptized. Number five, if you don't want Jesus' power in you, if you prefer to struggle and go through difficult times without the presence of God, then you shouldn't get baptized. Number six, if you would rather fight for victory than fight from a position of victory. Number seven, if baptism is just another rule. Many people feel this way. It's just, a, it's just another thing you're supposed to do. Jesus isn't forcing you to be baptized. Listen, uh, my, when my girls get old enough to date, I will never convince one of their boyfriends that they have to marry my daughter. It is a privilege Baptism isn't something you have to do. It's a privilege. It's something we get to do. It's not just another rule. Number eight, you were already sprinkled as a baby. We kind of already addressed this one, but this is an appeal to God, a request to, for his saving power in our lives. Number nine, it, you will do it another day. Folks, scripture says today is the day of salvation, that we are here one minute and like the morning dew, we're gone the next. There's no day like the present day to meet Jesus in the waters of Christian baptism and to go home wet. Number 10, you would do it today, but dot, 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 all right? I would do it today, but I'm afraid of the water. I promise we won't let you go. It's shallow. I'm sure you can stand up in it and your head will be above the water. The water will be cold. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm, I'm sure, I think there's a heater in there, right? But the point is hell is hotter, right? 
I don't know where to go. Meet me right here, right there, right? Don't know where to go. My family's not here to see it. We have a video camera. We will record it. We will take pictures for you. You can send it to them. I need to pick my kids up in the children's ministry. Listen, our volunteers will gladly wait a few more minutes so that you can be baptized. I don't have a towel. We have towels. I don't have a change of clothes. Your clothes will dry. Plus, we have shorts and t-shirts if you want to use them. I'll soak my seats. We can send you home with the trash bag. You see, folks, Jesus died for you. And he longs for you to come to him and let him do what he does best to rescue us from the grip and the power of sin and death. But you need to come to him in full submission to his authority, surrendering all to him. Friends, you will get wet on this ride, but I promise you, it will be worth it. You pray with me. Lord, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for this time we can gather together as one body, your church. We give you all the praise, give you all the glory that's due to your name. Lord, we thank you for this grace that you give us that we, God, we could never earn it. We could never do enough good things to revive our spiritually dead soul. We're solely dependent on you. I pray, Lord, for those here today that perhaps have never given their life to you, never submitted their lives, turned their lives and will over to your care and control. I pray, Lord, you give them whatever the 10, 20 seconds of courage that they need, Lord, to just come down and and meet us in this front row and to go home wet. Lord, we thank you for the grace that is ours and the hope that we have no matter where we're struggling, we always have hope because of you. We love you, Lord. We ask all this in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.